This morning's sermon is entitled Paul's Validity. Paul's Validity. I thought that I was going to be preaching a sermon this morning on order and order in the sanctuary along with head coverings in the Lord's Supper. That was the plan. That's what I've studied the past two weeks. However, and it is certainly not foreign to us or to me or to us, as you've, you've heard me say this before, um, the Lord led me in a different direction for this morning. Uh, so we're not going to talk about head coverings and hair. Um, that'll be in two weeks. Uh, when I began to prayerfully type this week, the Lord led me in the direction of the Apostle Paul. Still in our text, though, um, I knew it was a God thing because of how easily and quickly it, it flowed and how quickly the, the passages come to mind. And I didn't even have to look them up. Most of them were memorized. And so I knew it was God that was moving me in this direction. So this sermon is about the validity of the Apostle Paul's predetermined ministry to the Corinthian church and to his other churches and disciples. It's a mouthful, I know, but we'll break it down. Why does Paul need to be validated is probably something that a few of you are thinking, and that would be good. He needs to be validated because of his position, his output, and his opposition, especially in regard to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which, as you know, is our current text, and also in regard to his position regarding women and his position against that of his critics regarding the gospel without merited works. I want to say that again, okay, because it was a mouthful. He needs to be validated because of his position, his position on men and women, on hair, on head coverings, and his output, that is his teaching on the subject, and his traditions that he's handing down. Remember, we looked at those the last time. We looked at that last week, okay? And his opposition, meaning those people in the church, mainly, like the Judaizers, who oppose Paul all the time, okay? Those are the things, those are the reasons why I think Paul needs to be defended and it's better to defend him now before we get into those things than it is to defend him later, okay? Paul's words, you have to understand, his words and his thoughts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 are under attack by people alive today and people that were alive in his day, okay? And today, we're going to see in a minute who attacked them in his day, but in our day, it's mainly feminist theologians 
Well, some of you probably don't even, didn't even know there was such a thing as a feminist theologian, but there are feminist theologians, and they make everything in the Bible about feminism, especially 1 Corinthians 11, because we're talking about the man being the head of the woman and God being the head of the man, head of the man. So we're talking about authority between men and women and God. And then we're talking about, again, head coverings. Should women wear a head covering when they pray? So as you can imagine, with that subject matter, feminist theologians have a field day. And they call Paul a womanizer. And they call him a chauvinist. You could take classes here in Pittsburgh on this subject at a seminary here in Pittsburgh on this subject. Uh, Paul needs to be validated also in regard to his doctrines, okay? And especially the doctrines he's bringing forth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and elsewhere. So next week, Pastor Steve is preaching. Pastor Scott is preaching. And then I'll be in the pulpit three weeks in a row after that. We'll get into the hair and head coverings and all that over that three-week period. And it'll take us a three-week period to get through it all, okay? Um, We'll have part two. Part one was last week of Christian Order. That was the title of the sermon. And so next week will be part two of Christian Order. Part one, part two. I'm sorry. I said that backwards. Okay. So... It's important for you to know that, and these are the only two words you need to memorize about 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to put a lot underneath the umbrella of these two words, gender distinctions. Gender distinctions is what this is about between men and women in society and in church. You with me? Okay. Last week in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, we saw Paul instruct his readers, be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. Then we examined how this applies to us, to our Christian walk. And we talked about what it looks like to model such an example to other people in our daily lives, right? Remember that? We also found it to be quite apparent from our text that the Corinthians, for the most part, were not incorporating these Christ-like qualities in their Christian walk, but instead they were behaving badly, sinfully. Then we saw that the Apostle Paul intended to send Timothy to Corinth so that he could be an example to the Corinthians as to how the authentic Christian life should be lived. And also, so that he could remind them, so that Timothy could remind the Corinthians of Paul's ways and teachings in Christ and in the other churches. Those are Paul's words. Then I pointed out to you that Paul was making a purposed transition into his next overarching point 
that he will cover throughout the next two chapters, which is, which are, A, how to conduct a church service in an orderly fashion, and B, how to commence and carry out that gathering in a way that respects everyone who is there. Simply put, Paul needed to bring order out of disorder that the Corinthians had been displaying. In fact, we see some of that disorder in verses 16 through 19 of chapter 11. If you want to look there, there was contention among the Corinthians. There were divisions. There were factions, problems with haughtiness, with pride, etc., etc., Then Paul says in verse 2, he says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. If you remember, this is basically where we left off last week. I pointed out how important these traditions were to the early church because there weren't many letters circulating at the time to be read at the churches. There were some circulating that would later be included in the canon of the New Testament, and there were some that were circulating that would not. Last week, I also touched briefly upon the validity of the canon of Scripture that we have today, the Bible that we have today, because because of the rigorous scrutiny that took place regarding these texts their inclusion and exclusion, by the men who presided over them. The fact that these men spanned a vast segment of time, geography, and culture, and the fact that they came from many different walks of life, all speak to the miraculous agreement on not only the books of the New Testament, but also the doctrines that were codified by the truths in these same scriptures. (coughs) Excuse me. Couple those things, folks, with the Holy Spirit's guidance and the Holy Spirit's inerrant inspiration And you are left with a holy writ of priceless treasure, an unchallenged, authoritative volume that we call the Bible, the Holy Bible. I should also point out that it was very early on in the church when Paul's writings were believed to be scripture, which they were and they are. In fact, it was Peter who called Paul's writing scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. And if you remember, I pointed this out recently in another sermon, and so did Pastor Steve. Lastly, while on this subject, I think I should say that we need to remember that this Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote, I should say, 
who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, this is the most important thing for this morning, had revelations from Jesus himself. He had revelations from Jesus himself. Now, please follow me carefully on this. This is where I'm going to begin making a case for the validity of Paul's teaching and Paul's doctrine. These are the things that you must know in order to understand 1 Corinthians 11, in order to understand the gospel, and in order to understand why Paul wrote, why God had him write two-thirds of the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 1, we've gone from 1 Corinthians 11 to Galatians chapter 1. Paul is defending his ministry and he's defending his doctrine and he's defending the gospel against who? The Judaizers. The Judaizers who were saying that Paul learned this gospel. Listen, Paul learned this gospel from other disciples of Christ in Jerusalem. That's what they were saying about Paul. Therefore, it was made up. He just got this from them. More lies. Paul replies with this, beginning in verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. What does that mean? It means he didn't go to the apostles right away to talk about any of this. He said, I didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. Who was in Jerusalem? That's the headquarters of the church at that time. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, three years go by, folks. He goes, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, who was Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. Verse 19, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia 
I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Paul makes it very clear. This gospel I preach was revealed to me by Christ, not by those men. The Greek word for revelation in Galatians 1.12, hopefully I won't butcher this, is apocalypsis, apocalypsis, which means an unveiling of something previously secret. That's very important. An unveiling of something previously secret. Paul is referring to the gospel like he so often does as a mystery. It was a mystery. Paul actually called it that. It was a mystery in the Old Testament that is now being revealed, revelation, being revealed plainly in the New Testament. Namely, what is the mystery of the gospel in the Old Testament? That the Gentiles would be made fellow heirs and members of the body of Christ by, by faith. By faith. <coughs> I had a really hard time here. Now it's important that we remember also who the Judaizers are. <clears throat> the Judaizers were men who were always in opposition to the true gospel that Paul preached, especially in Galatia. Why? Because they said that one could not be saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, but instead, in addition to one's faith, one would also be bound to keep Levitical laws, especially circumcision. So Paul's saying you're saved by faith alone. The Judaizers are saying, no, you're not. Okay? So in a nutshell, they taught that salvation could only be had by a combination of God's grace and human effort. God's grace and human effort. Now, I'd like to have a little bit of fun now, if I could, please. Let's try to get inside Paul's head and imagine, I want to imagine for how his conversation might have gone with the Judaizers. What could Paul have said to the Judaizers and to the many, many others, okay, who opposed Paul's plan to preach the gospel by faith alone. 
In other words, salvation is by faith alone. Okay. Paul could have easily said to the Judaizers who were accusing him, remember, very important, of cohorting with the apostles in Jerusalem, okay? He could have said, yes, of course, I had a previous knowledge of Jesus. Of course I did. Do you think I live under a rock? I knew who Jesus was. He could have said, the very reason that I knew of him, his work, and his claims is exactly why I viciously attacked and persecuted those who believed in him in the first place. I mean, after all, it was some of you, Judaizers, who were his followers that were claiming that he was the, the, the son of God to begin with. That's why I went after his followers in the first place. And Paul could have said, do you guys really think that I didn't already know that he claimed to be the promised Messiah of the Old Testament? I mean, that's eventually why they crucified him in the first place, now wasn't it? Of course I knew, Paul would say. I knew. I mean, he was breaking the Sabbath. He was calling God his own father. He was making himself to be equal with God. And he was saying that he was one with the father. And I could hear Paul say, lastly, you numbskull Judaizers, do you think for one second that I couldn't have rattled off his teachings at any time and have accurately stated many of the central teachings of his gospel before he saved me on that Damascus road. I could have laid the gospel out. I didn't believe it. I didn't like it. I hated it. But I could have laid it out. And then Paul would say, do you actually think for one second that I didn't hate his guts and the guts of all his followers and that I didn't know everything about them? He would say, I had a zeal against them that was far greater than anyone's. Don't you guys get it? I knew these people. I hated them. I killed them. But guess what, Mr. Judaizer? Paul would say, it's very hard to resist God when God does this. Does what, Paul? When God does... Galatians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, 14 through 16. Look at it again. He did this to me, Paul could say. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me, through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Yeah, that's right. Paul would say, it's kind of hard to resist him when he called you from your mother's womb. And then Paul would say, oh, trust me, I tried. I tried very hard to resist him. 
And do you know what Jesus said to me when he revealed himself to me after he knocked me to the ground? I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you. Why? To appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Rescuing you from the... Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. <laughs> I'm going to send you to them and you're going to get in so much trouble that I'm going to have to rescue you from them. Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from dominion, the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Okay, Paul's going to take a break now. This is me talking for a minute. Some of you may be wondering uh, what kick against the goads means, or the King James says kick against the pricks. Apparently, to kick against the goads was a common expression found in both Greek and Latin literature it's a it's a rural image which rose from the practice of farmers goading their oxen into the fields okay though unfamiliar to us um everyone in that day would have understood the meaning of it goads were typically made of slender pieces of timber blunt on one end and sharp pointed on the other end and farmers used to um, or father, farmers used the pointed end to urge a stubborn ox into motion into the way that they wanted the ox to go and then the ox would kick against the sharp point, against the goads. And the more the ox kicked, the more likely the goad would stab into his flesh or leg, causing greater pain. And that's how they moved the oxen. Okay, back to, back to Paul. Paul's talking here in my, my imagination. Paul could have added, I not only was resisting Jesus by kicking against the goads, but my heart was really, really hard. I even consented to Stephen's death by stoning over in Acts 8.1. That's how much I hated Christians. So you see, O oh Judaizers, if there was ever a zealous and thoroughly knowledgeable Pharisee, it was me. Having my training and mentorship under who? Gamaliel, the greatest Pharisee that ever lived. I know the law and the traditions of the Jews better than all of you put together. I would slaughter you in a debate about the law and the traditions of our fathers. 
No one was more zealous than me, not only for the ways of Judaism, but also for the eradication of this new Christianity. Speaking of Christianity, guys, Paul would say, because I know the law and the Old Testament scriptures so well, I could walk you through the Old Testament books and show you every typology, every theophany, every likeness, every foreshadowing, every fulfilled prophecy of Christ. And I can do it in an inarguable fashion, if I might add. And because I am so learned and so zealous for all of these things, God chose me to preach the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles, but mainly the Gentiles. Oh, and speaking of the Jews and Gentiles, did you know Judaizers, that I'm also a Roman citizen. That's been pretty handy for me lately and has also been by God's predetermined, designed plan for my life. Okay, Paul says, here's the final kicker, guys. I can do show and tell. No one on the planet right now can show you the gospel in the Jewish scriptures like I can. And no one can tell it to you like I can. So when I hand down oral traditions, 1 Corinthians 11, when I hand down traditions to the church, you can be rest assured that those traditions are validated by and rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. If not, They came from direct revelation that I had from Christ. 2 Corinthians 12. In fact, I've been caught up to the third heaven and have heard inexpressible words that I ain't even allowed to talk about, he says in 2 Corinthians 12 too. And in verse 7 of that chapter, 2 Corinthians 12 And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, folks, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. In other words, guys, if I hand down a tradition that is to be observed and I tell you to hold firmly to it, like I did in 1 Corinthians 11, then you could be rest assured that this was something that the Lord himself wanted me to do. And if I write it down, here's the kicker. Paul could say, if I write it down in the form of a letter and I distribute it to the churches, then you better believe it's inspired. Inspired of God himself. And imagine, Paul, I mean, Naked, shipwrecked, snake-bitten, beaten, stoned, left for dead. This guy went through, homeless, he went through it all. If anybody could say with certainty, I'm God's man, it was Paul. He would say, I just proved to you, Judaizers, that he, God, controls every aspect of my life from my mother's womb and every aspect of my ministry. 
So if you would humor me for just a tad longer, you Judaizers, I'd like to get just a little more specific with you. Here's the good part about what you believe. Remember, the Judaizers believed that you could believe in Christ, but you also had to keep parts of the law. You had to do good works. You had to have merit to be saved. I think that Paul would have said something like, you've been a thorn in my other side lately. The way you infiltrate the churches that have been planted and you bring in your legalism telling everybody that they have to be circumcised to be saved and they have to keep certain laws to be saved, etc., etc. Paul would continue, the gospel that I am preaching to you was not by human invention or tradition. Like I said before, I received it through a revelation of Christ, Galatians 1.12. As a matter of fact, you should know that everything I learned prior to Christ saving me, I counted as rubbish. Philippians 3, 4 through 8, he says, I know that I can't be saved by the works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. And the same goes for you, Judaizers, or you who think you got to work your way into heaven, or you who do not believe that you could get to heaven just by faith in Jesus Christ. Please let me help you, Judaizers and naysayers, to understand what I mean, Paul says. The first thing you need to understand is that with all of your effort and labor, you cannot come to Christ on your own. Why? Because you are stuck under the curse of sin. As a matter of fact, you are dead in your sins. You are actually an alien by birth and a sinner by choice. You can't help yourself one iota. Don't you know that through one man sin, sin entered into the world, Adam, and death through sin, and so death passed unto all men, for all have sinned, Romans 5.12. Everyone born in the, in the image of Adam, in the lineage of Adam, sins. Do you know what you are, Judaizers? You are of that generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet you are not washed from your filthiness. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 12. In fact, Paul would say, it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There are none who understand. There are none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good. Not even one. Romans 3, 10 through 12. So please don't try to tell me that you have, have found favor with God through your own works. Because God has made that impossible. That is not a possible way to come to Christ. Do you know why? Because if it was, then you could boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. 
Do you want everlasting life? I hope everybody here wants everlasting life. There's only one way to get it. Through Christ and Christ alone. It's on His merits that, that you rest in Christ, not on your own. If you desire to have Christ, it's because God put that desire in your heart. And if God is really moving on your heart, then it is at this point that you will come to realize how much you hate your sin. Do you hate your sin, Judaizers? Do you hate your sin, abiding Grace Church? I sure hope you do. Because if you want to fall down before Almighty God and beg Him to forgive you of your sins, if you want to turn from those sins and begin living a new life, a holy life, for and in Jesus Christ, then that means you most likely belong to Christ. You most likely belong to Christ because a genuine repentance is marked by a new life in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all has become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. That means that we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word, whether by word of mouth, or by letter from us. That's 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15. So you see, my Judaizer friends, Paul would say, we don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to earn our salvation because Jesus already did that for us. He is the spotless Passover lamb who shed his blood on Calvary's cross for your sins and for mine. And he is offering us the free gift of salvation that he secured on that cross for us. And if we try to bring any of our own works or our own merits to that cross, that is blasphemy. It's no different than spitting in his dead face as his body hangs on that cross. This gospel, this salvation, it's all 100% God's doing. And it's absolutely none of your doing. If you come to him, it's because he dragged you to the sun. John 6, 44. 
So there you have it, folks. Defending the validity of Paul's ministry to preach the gospel, defending what we are about to study in two weeks, which is the role of men and women in the church and how the church is to be conducted. When we get together next and we get further into 1 Corinthians 11, my prayer is that you will plainly see why the Lord had me go down this route this week. Pastor Steve, would you pray? Because I can't talk.